This is Annie Grace, and you're listening to this Naked Mind podcast, where without judgment, pain, or rules, we explore the role of alcohol in our lives and culture. This is Annie Grace, and welcome to this Naked Mind podcast. I'm super excited to be here with uh, Christine. Welcome, Christine. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great, Annie. Thank you. So glad. So why don't you just like take me back, walk me back to sort of your background, the beginning of your drinking days, take me back to where it all started. Okay. And before I start, I just wanted to say how much you remind me of Rhonda Byrne who uh, is the Australian author and media producer that put together the movie, The Secret oh, in 2006 and the book. Because, you know, at the end of 2004, she was in a really bad place and her daughter gave her a book called um, uh, The Science of Getting Rich by uh, Wallace Waddles, written in 1910. And Rhonda says, of that moment, she says, something inside me had me turn the pages one by one And I can still remember my tears hitting the pages as I was reading it. It gave me a glimpse of the secret and it was like a flame inside my heart. And, you know, so much lifted from her and it benefited her so much. She said, I've got to share this with with the world uh, so people can understand the law of attraction, which is basically the secret. And that's what you've done. And you've just opened up this for so many of us. So I I want to thank you. Thank you. That's so sweet. I watched that movie on a plane three years ago and I was like, oh my gosh, why has nobody told me this before? <laughs> this is amazing. This is just like such a cool thing to think about. Like, you know, your desires can actually, um, yeah, it's just amazing. Yeah, our thoughts are energy. And, uh, you know, what we focus on, we draw more of to ourselves. So, great. <laughs> so cool. All right. Very cool. So I guess um, what I was just going to say is that um, I had a take it or leave it attitude about alcohol all my life. Um, I had a a false belief that, you know, if you have the alcoholic gene, which I don't believe in anymore, but if you have that gene, it'll appear right away. If you drink, you know, for any period of time or any length of time, it's going to get you. So I assumed that although my grandfather had it, he played pro baseball in the twenties and was kicked off the team because of drinking and consequences of that. My brother, younger brother just died in May of um, complications with drinking and pills. And I actually told myself, well, you know, I don't take pills, so I'm okay. You know, we keep justifying what we're doing because we just, you know, I didn't want to face the fact that I might have a problem and what having a problem would mean that I'd have to label myself an alcoholic, that I'd be stuck in recovery the rest of my life. And I've been a counselor, so I know what that's like. And uh, the doom people feel, you know, to be trapped, forever recovering, never really having joy in your life and always abstaining and keeping away from people, places, things, you know, that are gonna trigger you. And I was so fearful of that. I thought, oh God, no, please. So, um, but I assumed that You know, it wasn't, I didn't have the gene. Uh, But when I was 24, my boyfriend died in an accident and I took, I turned to Christianity to try and make sense of my life. And uh, so I tried to quit a lot of things through willpower. And as you know, willpower runs out. (laughs) It's finite. (laughs) And um, so I tried uh, quitting smoking and various other things. And, uh, you know, when the stress became too much, I started snacking on food. 
So when I gained weight quickly, I thought to myself, well, now I'm being a bad example of a Christian. So I went on a three-day water fast. And at the end of the three days, because I thought it was a spiritual problem, because I'd never had an eating problem before, I went on water three days, and at the end of it, I just ate more than ever. And so I thought, well, I haven't gone long enough. So I went 21 days on water only. What? I was working in a men's prison as a guard at the time. I was like 20, early 20s. And I got so much attention from people, which I craved because I didn't get it growing up, that I lost a lot of weight and I got all this attention. And, um, but at the end of it, I still binged on all the foods that I had been My mouth is still hanging open. I've done a five-day water fast, and that was... I, I'm just amazed. Wow. Well, you know what happens after a while, your hunger goes away, sort of, and it's not that hard. It's coming off it. <laughs> and so I came off it and I started eating again. And I thought, my gosh, I'm just not normal. This is the thing we tell ourselves. I'm not normal. I'm defective. I have a problem. So this was early 80s. There wasn't a lot known about eating disorders and things. So I just decided that I was going to have to control how I ate. So this went on for years with me restricting what I ate, how much I ate, and, um, and then finally giving in and couldn't take it after a while. And then I'd binge for two, three days and then fast again to rid myself of, of the damage. This went on for many years. And at the same time, I was weight training in gyms, uh, doing lots of cross training. You know, I was in the gyms in the 80s when women really didn't do weight training and um, I just loved it. I was strong and I had the body type for it. So I really loved it. So that reinforced this whole body image thing I had. And then I decided I was going to continue to eat healthy because I wanted to ward off any health issues my parents had. They, my dad had hardening of the arteries. My mother had various things. So I thought, well, I'm going to watch what I eat. I'm going to try to eat healthy. I'm going to weight train and I'm going to be great. Well, I looked good on the outside. And people often said to me how wonderful I looked, but on the inside, I knew I wasn't free. And uh, in 1997, I read a book called Happiness is a Choice by Barry Neal Kaufman, whose uh, wife, uh, Samaria, and he started the Option Institute in Massachusetts. But uh, I read the book and I remember finding it in the library saying, what idiot wrote this? If happiness is a choice, we'd all be happy. It was a little book. So I said, all right, I'm going to read this and laugh my way through it. Well, I read it and I was amazed. He gives very short little shortcuts that you can do. So I started practicing them, like being present, being authentic, gratitude. Uh, letting go of judgments was a huge one. I grew up in a very dysfunctional family, lots of sarcasm and wittiness. And when you're funny and people tell you how funny you are, you just lock it in. It's like, and I realized, but sarcasm is not really what I want to do. And um, so in the book, I realized that if I was unhappy, it was my beliefs that were making me feel that way and not my situation or my past or other people. So the idea of stimulus, response, outcome, they interject a little thing in there. In between stimulus and response, it's beliefs. Mm. So you have an event, a stimulus, something that happens, and then unconsciously, which is what your book totally talks about, unconsciously, a belief is kicked in, or more than one, and it's operating in the background, and suddenly we have desires to respond a certain way, and, and then we behave a certain way. And so I realized 
wow, I just need to get in and change these beliefs. Let go of these beliefs so that I can respond the way I want. And so in the 70s, Barry and his wife had, um, are you familiar with them, the Option Institute? Uh-uh. So I'll just share a little quick about them. They, uh, they were able to help their son, Ron, who uh, recover from autism by accepting the son that they had with all his strange behaviors and not trying to fix him or make him the son that they wanted him to be. Wow. So they decided to let go of the beliefs that the doctors had told them uh, that there was no hope. He had an IQ less than 30. Uh, he had no language or communication skills and they said there's no hope, just institutionalize him. But B Barry and his wife, Samaria, had done a lot of work on their own marriage and lives, you know, back then with different kinds of things that were going on in New York in the 70s. And they had healed a lot of their relationships. So they realized, you know what, we're not going to do that. We're going to love him and accept him as he is and just let him know we're here for him. And so what they did is um, they entered his world instead of forcing him to enter theirs. So when he was spinning plates, you know, uh, his mom would spend up to 12 hours a day with him in the bathroom where it was least distracting. And she just did what he did. If he flapped his hands, she flapped her hands. If he spun plate, she did it. And they weren't doing it, and this is the key, to try and change him or fix him. She did it to show him, I love you, and I want to be with you, and I'm going to be with you on your terms. So she did. And um, this took about three years of just doing it without any expectations, and one day he made eye contact. And after that, he started coming out of it. And he graduated from Brown University with a degree in biomedical ethics on the debate team. <laughs> and now he's CEO and head of global education at the Option Institute. It's 100 acres in Massachusetts. And uh, it's fantastic. They have the Autism Treatment Center of America there also. And it's, they teach other parents how to have this accepting attitude and various tools and skills that they can do to work with their own special needs kids. So I, yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? And I went there in 2000, uh, no, 1998. It, I was in between college and I was a single mom raising my son alone and uh, Ethan. And I realized, you know, I'd read the book and I said, you know, I don't have the money to take any of their courses, but you can volunteer for free. So in between getting my full degree in, in social work, I went there for 10 weeks and volunteered. And it changed my life. <laughs> and uh, I just learned so much. And I, one of the things they teach there, which is amazing, is it's just the option dialogue process, which is um, asking non-judgmental, uh, non non-directive questions of someone so they can uncover the beliefs they have and then decide to change them or not. So I went there and I really worked on myself. When I left, I still had the eating problems, but... I had learned to accept where I was, knowing that I was doing the best I could based on my current beliefs. And that was a huge thing. So I was choosing happiness, which is acceptance and letting go and just being calm or content with what is. I went home able to do that. So shooting forward in 2008, after I'd watched The Secret myself, I realized, whoa, I'm getting in the way of the universe. <laughs> I am doing the universe's job trying to find a partner. I need to just believe and that I deserve it and let, let me meet him naturally and it will come to me. And I was so excited because for years I had dated 
and my son said to me one day, gee, mom, you know, when are you going to do your part? You keep thinking God's going to give you somebody, but when are you going to do your part? And so I let go of the beliefs and I made a vision board and I put on there everything that I wanted in a partner. And four months later, I met my husband, mate, and we have everything that I wanted on that vision board, music, laughter, a commitment to personal growth. It was just wonderful. And so in 2016, or in 2009, my husband and I moved with my son, Ethan, to Oregon, which I, where I live now. And um, I was doing social science research as an assistant. And um, I traveled quite a bit. And when I wanted to relax in the evenings, the hotel rooms, hectic traveling and all this, I'd get a glass of wine or two. And, uh, but then the next day, I'd be working, busy doing things. And so it wasn't really a problem to me yet. Um, I continued to um, uh, work in a gym. I, well, when we moved in 2016, my husband and I moved to our property. Now we have five acres that's rural. And um, I had a job in town as in a gym. And when I worked at the gym, I became dissatisfied after a while because I, I just wasn't happy with the focus that a lot of the older people had on intensity still. I had done CrossFit training and all kinds of weight training and things for years and I knew, you know, that as you get older, you need to kind of listen to your body, you know, listen to your instincts of what it's telling you. But I saw the gym atmosphere just wasn't what I wanted anymore, this, this pressure. So um, I quit. And an amazing thing happened. I get home and I'm out here around five acres and I'm not working. My husband's a nurse and he commutes to work in a bigger city. And I've got nothing to do. <laughs> and uh, so I started relaxing and I said, this feels so good. I love this. So I was started eating whatever I wanted, not binging, but just relaxing all the control I had about eating paleo or whatever, you know, and I gained 30 pounds in a year, but I was happy. I know that sounds weird. Amazing. <laughs> I was happy because I accepted where I was at. I knew that I would much rather be 30 pounds overweight and happy and free than to have that constant lifelong monitoring everything. During that year, I also drank more. So what would happen is in the, when I was working, as you know, lots of your podcasts, people have said, you know, when you're working, you're busy, you get home at night and that's when you drink. Well, when you're not working anymore and you have time on your hands, the drinking can start earlier. So it was noon when I would have my first glass of wine. And Having been a counselor, I knew all the criteria in the DSM for, you know, for, um, you know, alcohol problems. And one of them is how often drinking often before noon. So I tell myself, I don't drink before noon, so I can't have a break. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was able to at least wait till noon. And then um, I would end up finishing a whole bottle by the time my husband got home at work from work about 530 and, um, you know, I just realized that it's increasing my drinking. In 2018, uh, my son became engaged to a lovely woman with three small girls, and I was suddenly a grandmother. Now, my son was more like a spiritual kind of monk for years. I didn't think that was ever going to be in the cards for me. And there I was now having these little girls that I could love, you know, six-year-old twins and a little four-year-old girl. And I found myself loving them and enjoying being around them. But when she became pregnant with a boy, 
my husband and I decided to put a smaller house on our property and let them have the big house. So I was busy for quite a while with projects getting the little house ready. And then in July, when we moved in, uh, I sat there and in a 600 square foot house, which is another thing we have in common. You I had lived in that one room cabin for years and I lived in South Africa for a number of years. My son was born there. There was no electricity, no uh, running, wa uh, running water, but it wasn't hot, um, no electricity. It was, it was quite intense. We were working, helping uh, destitute people and we'd renovated a, a large building. We ended up with 500 people living there who were destitute for various reasons. And um, so anyway, I'm back in this little 600 square foot house. And I remember thinking, you know, um, I like my life. I was happy. I loved reading mysteries and thrillers and I enjoy playing online card games and just my little life, you know, and I, I was quite happy and I really was. But although I liked the house, I became more aware of how small my life really was. And soon I realized, do I want to spend the next 20, 30 years doing this? <laughs> I don't know if I enjoy it that much. I think there's a little more to me. And I had been in some community plays here, you know, uh, and really loved it, loved acting. And um, so, uh, but I didn't want the big commute and I didn't realize that there was this belief operating underneath everything. But um, so, I, so I continued to drink. And the reason I was drinking during the day, I realized, was because I wanted to soften the edges of my small life. Yeah. And the buzz, you know. But then you have to chase the buzz. <laughs> it doesn't last. And then I would end up cranky and tired and just wanting to rush through dinner and, you know, didn't really want to spend time talking to my husband in the evenings. And that's when I began to realize you're developing a problem here. You're not just able to drink a few glasses of wine to kind of relax. It's taking over. And when I started having one at like 11, I thought, oh, that's when the evenings at night laying in bed wondering, my God, something's happening. What's going on here? I, I don't understand this. Because you tell yourself, I've never had a drinking problem in the past, so how could I have one now? Um, and also, I never felt drunk. I was able to do things and be around people with anyone questioning me, which I told myself is another criteria. Some, someone has never said to me, you know, I think you might be drinking too much. So I justified that I was okay. And then I never had a hangover, uh, which was another thing I told myself. <laughs> you don't have a hangover. No, my hangover started in the evening when I'd have a headache from drinking. <laughs> And, and then I'd go to bed. But in the morning, I woke up okay, and I would do my things during the day. And then around 11 or 11.30, I'd start to drink. And I quit. I was able to quit for two or three days at a time, then telling myself, see, you don't have a problem. You can quit. But then when something would happen, I'd be in a grocery store, because here you can buy alcohol in the grocery stores, you know, wine and things. I'd say to myself, well, you know, whatever excuse there was, it's Friday or it's a birthday or something's happening. And, you know, I was able to quit for three days, so I don't really have a problem. And I really like wine and it really helps me, you know. I felt like it was really enjoyable. Like you say, a friend, it was like, you know, I couldn't imagine going the rest of my life without it. So I thought if I can quit for three days, then I can uh, moderate my drinking. And so I would buy a bottle of wine and come home and say, now you're not going to drink it all in one day. You're just going to. But of course, the alcohol is 
an addictive substance. It is a drug. And I love when you say in your book, it shouldn't be alcohol and drugs. It should be drugs and alcohols included. <laughs> and uh, because when people drink, they're drinking a poison. They're drinking an addictive drug. And they just need to be careful that it will catch up to you if you're not careful. So what happened then is um, the dissonance inside me where I knew I had a problem. I wanted to quit but couldn't. I ended up drinking that bottle of wine that I'd buy from the store in one day. And I knew I was right back to square one. Um, so although I was accepting where I was with my drinking, I didn't know how to stop. And that's when I shared with my husband, who I'd kept it kind of secret from before. Because I didn't, you know, he still drank like a beer sometimes at night, once in a while. And he'd also have NA beer, which he enjoyed. Because he didn't like how beer affected him. He'd be tired and kind of lazy, not want to do anything at night. So he would, every once in a while, have a real beer, but most of the time, NA beer. And I just didn't want him looking at me with judgment, thinking, you know, and he loves me and he would never judge me in a negative way, but I didn't want him to say, uh-oh, she has a problem. And then I didn't want to have that seal of doom. There you are, the stamp. You are an alcoholic. Good luck. Off to your meetings you go. Having a sponsor. Doing readings. You know, all this kind of stuff. Because <laughs> I had already found a lot of happiness in my life. Spiritually, I knew who I was and, you know, all that meaning of life, all that stuff. So I didn't really need the higher power stuff and all that. I already knew that I believed that source energy is my higher power. I didn't need to find something that I turn over to. I just wanted to know why can't I stop when I want to? And so Nate, my husband, bought your book. And the way he found it is he's a, a, an avid reader of The New Yorker. And there was a review of your book in there. And this was, I think, July or so. And he saw the book. And the thing that stood out to him <laughs> is when you said, you can continue to drink while you read the book. And the reason he loved that is because he said, now I know that Chris isn't going to now think I'm judging her if I give her a book that says you, she can drink while she's reading it. <laughs> <laughs> so he gave it to me in Kindle form. And honestly, the first time I looked at it, Annie, I thought, oh, God, here we go, a book. Because it said control alcohol. And I thought, oh, it's going to be a bunch of how-tos and things I have to do. And uh, so I secretly thought, I'll read it, I'll peruse it, and then I'll return it. But I felt guilty because my husband had bought it for me. And I thought, you've got to give it a good read. You can't just skim through it. So I said, all right, I'll give it a good read. So I just started reading it. And I was still drinking. You know, and I enjoyed reading it and uh, I put it down because I was afraid of what was coming. I thought, oh, God, the, the, the stuff you have to do is coming. I know. <laughs> Even though you say right from the start, don't worry, you don't have to do anything. And uh, so I put the book down, but then I'd pick it up again. I'd say, you know, I really do need to give it a little more of a read if I'm going to return it. So I'd pick it up and read some more. And when I realized you do the liminal points, I said, wait a minute, those are beliefs. Those are unconscious beliefs that we have. And I said, and don't you already know all about that? So come on now, give this a good chance. That's when I got hooked in reading it. It was just a, probably a week later, reading it pretty much every night, a chapter or two. I just quit drinking. I had no desire. So I just stopped drinking. But the funny thing happened. <laughs> and this is what I love about this, because you really can see it like this. Um, 
I knew that you said you can drink. And you also said, now, if you've quit drinking, you do, I'm not encouraging you to start drinking, but you know, if you haven't, you can continue to drink. So I thought, okay, well, I have no desire to drink and I've really lost it. It's amazing. But one day something happened. I thought, you know, though, I haven't finished the book yet. <laughs> so I'm going to go out and get some more wine. So I went and got a bottle of wine and I remember telling Nate openly about it. I said, she said we could drink. So I went and got the bottle of wine and I just opened it up in front of him. I said, I just feel like enjoying it, you know? So I opened it up and I drank it and the weirdest thing happened. I did not enjoy it. <laughs> I immediately felt bad. I immediately thought, I don't like this feeling because I knew by then it's poison. Why would I put motor oil into my body and expect to feel good? You know? Um, so I had let go of all those beliefs that it's healthful and it's, you know, all these kind of, and, you know, I have lots of energy. So a glass of wine will relax me. I just drank the wine and I realized I do not like this. And that was the last time I ever drank wine. And that's been since early August. I have no desire. That's the joy. I have no mm -hmm. desire. It's pulled out like from the root. There's no more. Oh, I wish I could have it. Everybody else gets to have it. And I'm doomed to go through life without enjoying it at special occasions like everybody else does, you know. And uh, instead, it was like, people shouldn't be drinking this stuff. It's addictive. It's dangerous for you. It puts you at cost for cancer. There's, you know, all kinds of different things that it does to you, you know. And I thought, I just don't want to do this. I don't want to do it anymore. And I have no desire to do it. But the interesting thing is, my life, the joy started coming. You know, and that's why I love the new title in your book now where you add, uh, instead of control alcohol, right? It's um, this naked mind, uh, find freedom, discover happiness, and change your life. I love that because that's what happens. So all this, every day I'd wake up and go, wait, I don't drink. <laughs> I don't want to drink. Oh my gosh, I have a day to look forward to without you know, oh God, how am I going to fight it? And I don't want it. And, you know, here I am stuck with it. And instead I would wake up and say, wow, I'm free. I'm so free. So I told my family, my son, everybody. And I was so excited. And so joy started coming back. I started, uh, I bought a stand mixer so I could start making bread, which I never wanted to do before. I kept my life very small. I kept everything that I did, especially around food, very controlled. And here I bought a juicer and I'm juicing fresh juices. <laughs> I'm like, what is going on? And the mess that was made, because I have a little, I would have OCD tendencies. I didn't care about the mess because suddenly I wasn't afraid. You know, alcohol, I realized, was taking the edge off of my small life because underneath it all, I had a very deep-rooted belief. And this came out after I quit drinking about a month after I'd quit drinking, when my life was so exciting, I went to birthday parties with my grandkids, never thought of drinking first before I went, so I could cope with the social event, you know. <laughs> and uh, all these things I was doing, I was just free from drinking, and it was so exciting. And I felt better, and I was happier, I was losing weight. And, um, but what happened one day is there was too many things going on. I was watching the three kids and then the new baby. He's three months old, little Arthur. And so I'm holding the baby and I'm getting their dinner ready and I'm getting the girls in their dance costumes because I watch them while their mom works part-time. And <laughs> something happened. My husband was supposed to stop and get a medication for the baby. And I open up the door and I yell out, did you bring it? Oh, I forgot it. He said, I just lost it because it was too many plates in the air. 
And when I lost it, I realized, why did I act like that? Because I haven't acted that way in a long time. And I was so happy not drinking. My life was getting so much better. Why was I suddenly turning into this hell woman? And when I sat and asked myself those dialogue questions, you know, I realized the underlying belief behind that was I have to take care of everybody and everything in order for everyone else to be happy. And that's how I grew up in my family. And so it was a very deep rooted thing. And suddenly I let it go, just like the book. You see the belief and you go, I don't want that belief anymore. It doesn't work for me anymore. It did as a kid maybe, but it doesn't anymore. So I said to my family, I'm so sorry that I just turned into this crazy woman who wants to handle everything and everybody. And from now on, I'm just gonna love and accept you where you're at. And if things are falling apart, I'm just gonna say, hey, how can I help? <laughs> Which then kept me happy. And I could watch things falling apart or whatever, you know, and be okay with it. And so I realized, wow, Chris, you were using alcohol to keep your life small. And I don't want a small life anymore. So I took my little granddaughter to uh, an open casting call and they at a modeling talent agency and they ended up signing me. So I'm so excited about that. Hopefully I'll be get, getting work up in Portland. And, um, you know, I'm just, I'm there, I'm present for my little grandson, Arthur. And I look at him and I just think, you know, when he was born, I told myself, I'm going to quit because I do not want to watch him and be under the influence. But I also told myself, but you drink and you're, you're not falling down drunk. You, but yet I was drunk because I'm sure my blood alcohol level because of tolerance, you know, was high, even though I felt like I was still in control. But I, I most likely wasn't because of the amount of drinking that I did. You know, they say binge drinking is a woman to have four drinks, um, you know, quickly within two hours. And when I looked at how much I was drinking, <laughs> it was more than that. Because I had the little clear glasses, you know, those little round ones. And when you go into a restaurant and you order the five ounce glass, which is considered a drink, right? You feel cheated because everybody else has got a 22 ounce beer. And you're like, what, really? I have to sip a five ounce little tiny drink throughout dinner and you guys are packing away these giant beers. That's not fair. So I would order the nine ounce version. Well, at home I got used to what that looks like in that glass. And so I was drinking probably eight ounces, at least three or four in you know less than two hours. And so I had definitely was binge drinking. I was afraid to look at any of this criteria because I was afraid of the label, which is why your book is so wonderful because once you let go of the fear of being alcoholic or being doomed to a life of denial and recovery, once you let go of all that, then suddenly you can accept you know, what alcohol is. You can read it, not afraid anymore. You read it and you go, yes, I knew that's what it was. It was doing that for me, you know? <laughs> That's so awesome. Um, yeah. So, wow, that's just, you're, I just have a big smile on because I love, I love your energy. I love the story. It's just all so awesome. One of the things that um, I think is so interesting, there's two things that you hit on. So I'm going to go with the, the beliefs that are uncovered after you stop. I think that's so powerful. And that really happened for me. And I have a very similar belief. I remember being really stressed going like, 
to family members' houses who I was like, oh my gosh, they're not okay. And it was because I had this belief that like somehow, my, are you an old, oldest child? Second oldest. Second oldest. So like, yeah. I feel like there's something in there of like, oh, I have to take care of everybody. Mm-hmm. But the crazy thing about these beliefs that free us so much is that we can't see them when we're drinking. And no. the whole journey is like, it's just not even available to us. There's no possibility that we can see that, right? Yeah. It's so interesting. It is. Two questions that, you know, I kind of like synthesized the ACT technique, which is in my second book. And it kind of took liminal thinking and then made a little bit more of a process to question your beliefs. Ah, I synthesized it into like two questions, like for any thought or belief that comes into your mind, it's like, how does it make you feel? And how does it make you behave? Because there's the truth of it, right? (laughs) And for me, when I felt like I had to take care of everybody, it made me feel totally um, helpless because I was like, I, I don't know how. It made me feel stressed. It made me feel yes. overwhelmed. It made me feel all of these really icky feelings. It made me feel controlling. And then how and was that happening even after you stopped drinking? Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a, for sure recent for me um, within the last, I'd say, year or so that I've really, un- I mean, there's so many layers. We're like, yes, oh. like an onion. Yes. <laughs> And so then how did it make me behave? Well, I was showing up and I was so distracted by this outcome for my family members that I thought they should have that they didn't yet, that I was behaving in like the least loving way possible. It it made me into this judgmental freak that I was just so bad. I was like, oh my gosh. So I love those questions because anything, you know, it really, it really, they're just like cut to the chase of it. Like, how does this, because we can choose what we believe. And that is just mind blowing and cool. And It is. Cool. And that we own our own happiness or unhappiness. You know, um, they have a saying there at the Option Institute, ownership equals change. You have to own your behavior. So when you let go of all the judgments around your behavior, you're able to own it. Yeah. When I thought that I was going to be an alcoholic doomed to treatment and all this and just live with misery and denial and missing it and everything, I did not want to own it. Because who wants to own, own it and then get all that? But to own your behavior and know that you can free yourself, that's how you can change. Because you can look at the belief and say, do I want that? Do I want to believe that anymore? And you can change your belief. That means you can be happy whether everybody around you is going crazy. <laughs> and that was another really freeing one for me. And it was actually, I, um, I think it was in a Byron Katie book where she said, you know, when you take someone else's unhappiness or someone else's suffering or someone else's grief inside, which like, I think like human beings were naturally empathetic, right? And some of us are perhaps more empathetic and and perhaps that's why we drink so much to begin with is to turn off some of that empathy. It doesn't feel so good, right? And so if you take someone else's suffering inside of you, because you feel like you're going to, you know, bear the mantle too, or carry it with them or some other self-sacrificing belief. Yeah. Um, you actually add to the suffering in the world. Whereas if you can yes. say, wow, it's not my turn. And because it's not my turn, I can be with you in it. Because how does it make you feel and believe if you feel like you have to suffer with other people who are suffering, you can't be with them in it. You can't show up. You can't be clear. You can't actually be a support because now you're in pain. And I know that yes. when I felt like I had to feel other people's pain, all I would do is run away from other people all day long. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because we can't be there for them if we're going to take on all their, yeah. That's right. wonderful, Annie. Isn't that yeah, interesting? That's great. Yeah, you know, so cool. 
the change you want to see in the world. You know, if each of us just is in charge of our own happiness and uh, can be loving and patient and non-judgmental with ourselves and be that with everyone else that we come in contact with, the world would automatically change. Yeah. Because then there'd be a, we'd all be able to compromise to get our needs met. You know, no one would be having too much because of the fear of not being enough. You know, they would know they're enough and they don't need all that. You know what I mean? So, so we wouldn't have to legislate it and make everything uh, politics because that doesn't work. But changing how we, you know, how we believe about ourselves, you know, being accepting is, is so wonderful. Well, I got to read your next book. <laughs> I didn't know you had another one. The other thing I wanted to say that I think is so interesting, especially for people who are listening, who are like, oh my gosh, she, she like quit instantly. It was amazing. I just want to say that um, it's so clear to me that like so much of the inner work was done ahead of time in your yes. And so That's like, why I wanted to share all that background so people would know that I'd done a lot of the uncovering beliefs before. Yeah. And because it, it can be like, it's so amazing when it, and that was how it was for me too, because I'd done so much work ahead of time. Yes. But I think that sometimes they're like, well, it's not just on a dime. It's not working. Why am I not getting it? Yeah. Well, it's like this chicken and the egg, right? If you're still mm -hmm. drinking, the beliefs are very hard to uncover. And yes, you can do them, but it's harder. But then if you stop drinking, they all bubble up to the surface and then you want to drink to pile them all back down because you're like, oh, I turned a light on in here and it's nasty. Shut the door. But actually, like, there is such a third option of actually cleaning out the closet and really but isn't it interesting too how in your book you talk about symptoms and instincts are the two phenomenal guidance systems that we have and i remember thinking you know when people always think it, you need to be um certified you need to be some sort of a, a professional you know to help people it's going to take years and then i thought well you know if, if you're drowning and someone comes by in a boat and it's some old lady or something you know and she goes hey hey give me your hand you don't stop and go hey are you a therapist? Are, are you certified? Have you written any books? Are you an author? You know, do you know what you're talking about? You know, no, you just grab it, you know. And so what I love is it's very simple. The symptoms that we have physically, emotionally, and then the instincts. You know, our higher self or the universe, source energy, all of that is in us. We have disconnected ourselves from it. And so just listen. It's always there. The instincts that tell us. Like when Rhonda Byrne, her daughter gave her the book and she read it. Something told her, keep reading. She kept reading and she cried tears of joys and, and she did the secret and look how many millions of people are helped now. And you, you know, so all of us, um, if we just relax, listen to yourself, um, take your time. My son is reading Alan Carr's book, Quit Drinking the Easy Way. And he knew about it long time ago, but never really finished the book. And this time he's taking his time going through it. Good. And he knows he's stuck at the fear of withdrawal, that one part. So he knows he needs to continue reading and just absorb it and take his time. But the joy of this is to know it will happen. Yeah. It's, not, it's not working for me. I must not be like all those other people who read your book and could quit. There's something, it's not working for me. It will. It will. You just have to don't judge, take your time, let it sink in. Let it make sense to you because if you don't accept the beliefs that, you know, you teach about what alcohol doesn't do for us that we thought we did. If you're drinking for a reason that you um, think it's helping you cope with other problems in your life, then you can't let go of it. If you're afraid of all those problems still, you know, so be kind to yourself, be easy on yourself, 
you're doing the best you can, right? Based on your current belief. But checking out the Option Institute, um, anything that talks about beliefs and how to uncover a belief and let it go, you know, the dialogue process was very helpful for me, you know, very basic questions. And they're not directives. So if the mentor, who's the person asking the questions, if the person exploring an issue talks forever, they don't say anything. As soon as you stop talking, they ask a question based on the last thing you said because they believe that we have the answers in ourselves. Mm -hmm. You don't need someone outside you to tell you. But where we get stuck is we go, I don't know. Yeah. Our mind goes, I don't know. And we say, I don't know, because we're scared to go there. But when someone says to you, well, if you had to take a guess, all of a sudden, it's like we've been given permission to free it up and say, well, if I had to guess, it's because of this. You know, and then it jump starts you again. You know? Yeah, so. we don't want to commit. It's so cool. <laughs> um, that's great. I really like Brooke Castillo. She uh, teaches that like confusion is a really indulgent emotion. And I like thinking of that, like overwhelm and confusion being like indulgent because we're indulging in really our, our safety zone, right? Like we're, yes. they, they keep us there because they prevent yes. us from, from taking. So I love that if you had to take yes. that. Um, so I have three more questions for you. First of all, I am writing a book of, not writing, I am compiling is the better mm -hmm. word, a book of stories. Mm -hmm. And I would love to take this podcast and give it to a ghostwriter and, and include your story in the book because I just think it's amazing. So I want to see if that's sure. awesome. Oh, great. Okay. And then second question, you said something at the beginning that you might want to, to share. Um, I do want to warn you like 10 to 30,000 people download each episode. So mm -hmm. <laughs> before, but if there is anything you wanted to share, and then I have one more question for you before we get off. Okay. Oh, sorry. I lost you there. Oh, did okay. You, then um, did you want to share like how people can reach you or anything like that? Yes. You know, because I have been through quite a bit, you know, I was in two cults when I was young. Um, you know, I am free from all my eating problems now, you know, and I know that many treatment centers to focus on recovery again, that you will always be in recovery. And so it's a wonderful thing to know that you can be recovered completely. And uh, so I have a lot of me that I want to share with people to help them. And um, so, yeah, if people want to email me, because at some point I may start, you know, a coaching thing or something where I can work with people online. But my email for now is chrishanks1003 at gmail.com. And we'll yeah. put that in the show notes also. That's very generous. Okay. Um, and I think I'm going to really, what you said about the, uh, if someone was drowning and someone was paddling by, I'm really going to adopt that belief because I do get quite a few, as you can imagine, um, disgruntled people who have lots of education in this space, but have not had a best-selling book <laughs> saying, where's your credentials? Yes. Who are you? What have you done? You know? And I'm like, well, I have a master's in science, but it's in marketing and <laughs> I just drank a lot. Like that's, that's my credentials. I'm an, I'm, you know, just wrote my own story. It's, <laughs> it's fascinating because I've always thought like, oh, geez, you know, I'm really, I'm really making some people upset, but you've given me a frame to where like, wait a second, maybe I'm the little old lady in the boat. Like I'm not going to pass by. Mm -hmm. It is not actually even within the fiber of my being to pass by <laughs> if I can reach out a hand, right? Like yes. there's nothing, um, what, whatever we've invented, Yes. Not saying that all credentialing is wrong or bad or anything yeah. like that, but yeah. just saying that like, yeah, I cannot not reach a hand out. So I think that's huge. Um, yeah. so and if people are being uncomfortable with you not being credentialed, they're making themselves unhappy. 
it's not you doing it to them. They're, they're doing it to themselves, you know? Mm-hmm. And the thing is to obviously focus on the people who do want help and who are able to hear us, you know, cause all we're doing is sharing our own experience. Like Scott Pinyard says in his podcast, I got free and I was just helping some guys and they were calling me and said, dude, you ought to do this. And now he's your head coach, you know, and you know, he was an engineer, right? Yep. Yep. So <laughs> About time the world stood up and said, all of us, we're normal, regular old people and we're, we know what we're doing, you know. Yep. All of something. Last thing I'll say about that is sometimes there's economic things that are tied in with having to admit, you know, when Barry and Samari Kaufman, you know, helped their son recover from autism, they had all kinds of backlash from, you know, uh, professionals and things who actually wanted to ban the work they yeah, if, you, if you've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on a degree and you expect it to get somewhere and then you see that somebody who doesn't have a degree has done something, yes, it's, it's helping I'm sure. I, I, I totally have empathy for that. Um, all right. So my last question for you is um, if you were to go back and tell yourself um, the self who was, you know, happy, but still, still wondering about this one aspect of her life, if you were to tell her what life is like on the other side, what would you say? I would say, do not be afraid to look at why you're drinking. You are not an alcoholic. There's no such thing as a defective gene. You do not have an addictive personality. So look at why you're doing something that you don't want to do anymore. And look at the belief that's under that. And free yourself, you know. Yeah. Don't waste time. (laughs) I love that. I love it so much. Well, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. Oh, Annie, it's been wonderful. And thank you. And I'm always sending you good thoughts to keep up the good work. (laughs) I really appreciate it. All right. Have a wonderful day. You too, Annie. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm so excited, you guys, because we are just about to start another live alcohol experiment. And if you do not know about the alcohol experiment, you need to literally drop everything right now and go to thisnakedmind.com forward slash LAE. That's LAE for live alcohol experiment. And here's the thing. This 30-day challenge is designed to interrupt your patterns and put you back in touch with the best version of you. You know it's that version that's living the most joyful life, that version that doesn't need alcohol to relax, or have a good time and that version that's having more fun and is more peaceful than ever. Again, it's a 30-day challenge. It's live. It's starting on the first. So hurry up. Go to thisnakedmind.com forward slash LAB. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast as it truly helps the message reach somebody who might need to hear it today.